Father, we thank you for your word. We had asked for clarity, that there would be no ambiguity. We had asked for lucidness, understanding that is crystal, so that we may be able to not only help ourselves in this life, to live according to your will, but to assist others in coming to faith and discipling them. We know that all of this happens by the power of your spirit and none of us is capable on our own. And we recognize you as this giver of the word and the giver of life and the giver of joy and all of the attributes of the spirit. We would ask, Lord, that you would provide those in abundance today. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, we'll digress just a little bit. It says there, so I say, walk or live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. If you recall, the Judaizers, they had wanted to make the case that Christians should be under the observances of the Old Testament law, like performing tasks uh, like circumcision, like having a special diet, like observing special days and Sabbaths. But Paul clearly says that this is another gospel. And in chapter 16, or excuse me, verse 16 of chapter 5, Paul writes, live by the Spirit or walk in the Spirit. And this can be a confusing term to some, but this is in opposition to what the Judaizers want by living under the law. So they are opposed to each other and they are opposite. Living or walking by the Spirit is opposed to living under the law. And the fear of the Judaizers or the legalists was that too much freedom will give license to sin and that only if a legalistic system is imposed will people remain holy. In other words, only if there are a lot of rules and regulations will you be able to live a holy life. And Paul says, no, That is not the case. It is not the outward acts that makes someone holy. You know, Paul talked about this also when he wrote to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. For instance, the individual that says, well, you know, I'm going to fast and pray, and hopefully by the end of that, I will be more spiritual and more in control of my physical body, and I won't fall into sin. And Paul here says, that's not true. You can buffet your body, you can starve yourself, you can withhold water, and if you think you're going to become more spiritual or stronger spiritually, if any of us think that, we are deceiving ourselves. More rules do not equate to less sin more rules equate to more rule breakers you probably committed a crime by driving here today you may have gone over the delineation line when it comes to a stop sign you know you have to be behind that and if you pull over that you can get a ticket i know somebody who did they pulled over it one foot and the police officer was kind enough to visit him with a ticket because he pulled over that 
And it can happen. Or maybe you did a rolling stop through a stop sign. You probably break these laws every single day. I'm amazed. I keep on telling Patty how many people I have seen lately run through red lights and actually speed up to get through them. And you know they're not going to make it. You know, and I'm saying to myself as I see them speed by, I go, you're not going to make it. And they don't make it. And I'm just amazed at how many lawbreakers there are. And the more laws we have, the more lawbreakers are there. Now, it's the inner influence of the Spirit of God. It is much more powerful than the outer influences of the law. It's what takes place on the inside that we have to be concerned about. For instance, the list of sins in chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, I'll read them to you again. It says, The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. And I think in that particular list, the King James installs adultery. Verse 20 says, Idolatry and witchcraft, which is drug use. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And last week, I told you where there are other references to lists like this, because this one is not complete. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Ephesians 5, 3 through 5, 2 Corinthians 12, 21, Romans 13, 13 and 14, and Colossians 3, verse 5. All of those deal with these lists. These lists of sins which are out there. Now these sins are given birth in the inner mind and eventually they lead to the outward action. Everything that you do begins up in this little skull, this cranium which is up there. For instance, if you start getting angry at somebody, it happens here first it does, your hand just doesn't want to reach out and punch somebody all by itself. You go, no, don't. Your mind is saying, get back at them, hurt them in some way. And that's where the anger, rage, the malice, the discord, the jealousy fits. All of those things, that's what happens up here. And Christ gives us a new mind by the indwelling Holy Spirit. You guys already know that when we are saved, when we say the sinner's prayer, when we confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he places within us his Holy Spirit. And we've already read in the past week that the sinful nature and the spiritual nature, the new nature that we have, they are always in conflict with each other. They're warring against each other. And it just depends on how much you want to give in to the flesh And that determines how much you'll end up sinning. And the Lord says, you don't have to do that. You can pay attention to the promptings of the Spirit. I don't know about you, but I know in my own life, when I feel that I want to carry out something in the flesh, the Spirit just, this is what the Spirit does, just, and I go, not now. You know, I I want to go to the flesh. I, I don't want to pay attention to that. And on occasion, there'll be a second and then I'll say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And I go towards the flesh. And that's where Paul says, we have to crucify the flesh. But the flesh just wants to completely dominate. And this is what the Judaizers were encouraging the people in Galatia. And of course in Colossae. And of course in uh, the church at Corinth. They were all being goaded by these Judaizers 
to let the flesh dominate, to have these hedges, to have these rules. And of course, as I just previously said, the more rules, the more lawbreakers we have. Now in verse 22, we get into the fruit of the Spirit. Now the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. But he uses a particular metaphor here, and the metaphor is fruit. Now, he could have picked something else, but he chose fruit. And so what you want to do when you're diving into the scripture is you want to look at the comparisons between fruit and what these characteristics are of the individual's who, individual who has been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. For instance, now get in mind your favorite fruit. There are so many fruits which are out there, even some unusual ones. I don't know if you guys know what a dragon fruit is. It's pink on the outside, it's white on the inside, and it has little black seeds on the inside. And it is juicy and it is flavorful. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorites when we go internationally. Sometimes that's one of the fruits that they will grab from the market and they'll prepare it for us. But fruit, for the most part, is good. Now, there's a couple of fruits that are over in Cambodia. They stink. But they, the natives that are over there, the indigenous people, they happen to like that particular fruit. One of them is called jackfruit. I can't remember the name of the other one, but it's kind of stinky. And if you smell it, some people, they actually have a reaction to smelling the fruit. But you can see some of the indigenous people, they'll just grab it and they'll just eat it like, oh, this is so good. But it's it's not something that you necessarily just want to dive into. It's kind of like that rotten fish that they have in the Scandinavian countries that come in a can. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but they open that up and most people start getting sick before they ever get it to their mouth. But they consider it a delicacy over there. But the fruit that we know that is out there, if you just think about them for a minute, I love cherries. I love the dragon fruit. I, I love, of all things, I like grapefruit. But grapefruit, it's bitter, but you have to put a little salt on it. And if you put the salt on it, it takes the bitterness away. And for me, it's some of the juiciest fruit that is out there. And apples, I, I like uh, Honeycrisp apples. Now, I don't know if you've had a Honeycrisp, but you bite into it and it's just as sweet. I'm starting to salivate here just thinking about it. Sweet and juicy, you know, these, these fruits are just great that God gives to us. And if you compare that to the fruit of the Spirit, there is this fruit that is good. It is really good. It is also, regular fruit is nutritious. You eat it down. They say eat fruit and vegetables. I I recently had a video meeting with a doctor just checking on my health. And he goes, well, are you eating beans and fruits and vegetables and staying away from the high cholesterol foods and all of that? And I was writing a list of some things that I need to be eating. And Patty saw it and said, oh, you're writing down stuff you're supposed to be eating instead of that stuff you are eating, right? And yeah, that's the case. But it's nutritious. It's good for you. The things on the inside that the legumes and the fruits provide, it's wonderful. And also fruit, do you notice that most fruit is pleasing to the eye? When you look at it, like uh, I, I like most fruits. 
uh, plums. I like the red meat plums with the red skin on the outside. And when they are ripe, you bite into it and it just juice all over the place. It's fantastic, but it's red, which are out, which is out there. And like the dragon fruit, you know, it's kind of a fuchsia pink color, which is out there. Or the oranges, the citrus, which is out there now. You can see that from a distance on these trees. And it's meant to attract your attention. And the fruit, usually, when you take it, it is satisfying, especially if you're hungry. You can bite into a piece of fruit or take a slice of some fruit. And by the way, I think I just read something the other day that watermelon is a vegetable. But I consider watermelon a fruit. And you eat that watermelon and it's just juicy. It's satisfying. It, it really uh, comforts the soul, so to speak. And fruit will also reproduce itself. That's where the seed is contained and if you take most seeds out now most of the fruit trees that we get today they're all grafted uh, the reason that they do this is because they they go to a tree that is a proven producer and they grab the buds and they graft those buds in there and then they cut off the rootstock which is usually quite more vigorous than a seed grown plant all your avocados are grafted all your citrus are grafted all your stone fruits are all grafted and that's what nurseries do a lot but they can reproduce by just using the seed which is there. And this fruit of the Spirit that we have on the inside, if it is cultivated properly, we will also reproduce. And that shows that we are healthy if we're doing that. Now, fruit is not gained by working. Have you gone out and encouraged your fruit trees to work? Get to it. Start pushing out those plums. You know, we, we need them right away. When we went up to paradise, when we were working up in paradise, we were going past a lot of nut farms, uh, almond trees. I mean, just rows and rows and rows of them. And you know, something unique happened. I rolled down the window and I listened. And I could hear the trees straining to push out the flowers. It's kind of like this. I want you to do this. I did this last week. I want you to do this with me. I want you to go, go ahead, do it. Okay, now imagine you're going next to an orchard and you roll down the window, count of three. You hear one, two, three. Do you hear that? Do you hear that by the fruit trees? No. The fruit trees, they're just hanging. They're going, what's up? They're going back and forth. They're just kind of in the wind. They're not doing anything. They're not making any effort at all. And if you abide in Christ, the fruit that you will produce, you go, oh, look at that. Oh, it's just hanging off there, the fruit. And guess what happens when you have all that fruit, when you have the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? People come up and say, I want some of that. And they pluck the fruit from your example. That's how it happens. And that's what was intended in this illustration of the metaphor. God wants us to be an example for everyone else who is out there that we come in contact with. And each of us has a sphere of influence. People we come in contact with that we communicate with. And God says, I want you to be that piece of fruit that people can come up and just pluck and they can receive nourishment and they will see that you have persevered over the seasons and that's why you produce fruit. Now, a young Christian who is walking with the Lord, 
How good is their fruit? Have you ever had a non-ripened piece of citrus where you bite into it and it's just, oh, it's just as bitter as can be? Or here's one that I run across quite often, pears. Have you ever had a green pear that is not quite ripe? It's just like hard as rock and there's really no flavor or sweetness in it. And the young Christian who is seeking to walk in the Spirit and exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit takes time. And we should not be impatient with them. Like, you should be showing fruit by now, you know, especially in this particular area or that area. What happened to your speech? How come you're not perfect yet? Well, you know, a fruit tree, a normal fruit tree, takes about five years of being in the ground before it produces fruit that is acceptable, that is good, that is nourishing. And so we have to give a little bit of... uh, patient endurance and long-suffering for those who are younger believers. Then there's this problem with the older believers. Have you ever seen an older fruit tree that has been neglected? Usually sap starts running off. There's dead wood in there. There's one place that uh, I visit on a regular basis and he has this peach tree. And he was telling me how wonderful the peaches taste in one season he goes go ahead take as many as you want and there weren't many pieces of fruit to take off there because he had trimmed it back so hard that only a few pieces came out and I took one and sure enough it was just as sweet as could be this last season he pruned it back and there's only one stick that goes up everywhere and it's not going to produce much fruit now imagine relating that to an older believer an older believer really doesn't study the, the tree, so to speak, doesn't get fertilized. There's not quite enough water. There's not the walking in the Spirit, and the fruit is sparse. By the time we've been walking with the Lord for several decades, we should be a heavy-laden citrus tree where people walk up and go, look at all the lemons on this guy. We're going to make some lemonade. We had this lemon tree when we first moved in our house. It was in a pot, and it was small. It wasn't even as big as this particular lectern, and it produced about 25 lemons the first season. I just go, wow, look look at that thing. It's just heavy laden with fruit. If we are in fellowship, if we are walking in the Spirit, and there is that love, joy, peace, patience, and so on being exhibited through us, there will be enough for all who are around us. If we neglect the study of the word, if we neglect the fellowship, if we neglect the breaking of the bread of the saints, there may be fruit, but there may be just a little bit. And so Paul wants uh, wants us to make this connection between the fruit of the Spirit and fruit that we understand that grows on trees. And remember, he is speaking to primarily an agrarian society. They understand what fruit trees are. They understand what a fig tree is. They understand what citrus is. And so all of these characteristics, we want to look at them for a moment. Now, if you've been a believer for any length of time, the first one is love here. And love is agape in this particular text. I remember when I saw this word the very first time, I remember exactly where I was. I was on 3rd Avenue and F Street in Chula Vista, and there was this, it looked like a head shop. You guys know what a head shop is? It looked like a head shop. It had posters and everything in it. And the word on the front of the store was agape. And that's what I called it. I, 
a, a gape. What is a gape? And I remember seeing that, and I was not even a teenager yet, but I understood later that that's agape, love, love for, and it had all the drug paraphernalia in there, and this was way back, but that's not what this love is referring to. That's referring to a love of drugs. But this agape is a conscious choice of self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. This is the type of love that Christ had for us. That we are always looking after the interest of others, even before ourselves. This is the type of love that is being expressed here. And of course, I think, again, most of you know that there are four dominant words in the Greek language for love. They are phileo, eros, agape, and storge. Uh, The phileo is the brotherly love where we get the city of Philadelphia. And and that's the word Philip, the name Philip comes from phileo, brotherly love. Then there's the eros, and that is the erotic form of love. This is where some people would say love at first sight or being madly in love. It's often characterized as erratic, passionate, possessive, and highly superficial but, uh, you know, some people throw around the phrase, well, let's make love. Well, no, that's more lust. Let's make lust is what that is. It's really not the agape. And we want to strive for the agape. Then there's the storge, which is the parental love for children. Whenever you see children or grandchildren, the love that a parent or a grandparent has for that child would be called in the Greek language storge. Then there is joy uh, or chara, where we get the female name Kara. Uh, I've seen that before. Uh, This joy is not dependent on the outward circumstances or things which we possess. It is an enjoyment or gladness that wells up from the inside that is produced by our fellowship with the Holy Spirit who resides in those who have Christ. It, It is not based on what happens to you. Have you had anything happen lately in the past couple of weeks where you just, oh, God, great and and you get a little frustrated and it doesn't work out or you busted your hand or your fingers on something you slammed your fingers in a cupboard or whatever it might be it just wasn't going your way and then they seem to add up during a day's time and by the time you get to the end of the day you know i'm glad that day's over and you're not really filled with joy well the circumstances that can come in our lives they can set us on edge, so to speak, but we always have this abiding joy, this chara or kara uh, in the Greek. And then a common word along with that is peace. Now, this word peace, uh, you would know it as a name, Irene. If you know somebody who is named Irene, that is the name in the Greek for peace, or Irene is the name for it. I think Renee comes from that as well. And so Kara and Irene were names, especially in biblical times, that were very popular at that particular point. <clears throat> and it means, this peace means contentment, tranquility, or calm, a lack of striving, and not simply an absence of fighting. It's where you're walking around, you're able to be calm, even though there's turmoil all around you. Then there is patience. This is the long suffering, patiently enduring. Now we usually are patiently enduring with little children for the most part. Now there are some parents that aren't. 
they really get after the kids and the kid usually ends up crying. The child ends up crying because the parent is so impatient. But for the most part, especially as you get older, I notice I have a lot more patience with children and grandchildren and little kids and even adults as I get older. I'm a little more long-suffering. I just go... Oh, well, uh, let's see you try again. Uh, let's go on for this next step. And, and you're patient with them. Or trying to train somebody to do something. Now, I've been an employer. I haven't been lately, but I've, I've employed many, many people. And training them to do something when they have not been trained growing up can be a frustrating task. And, and Applying this patience and long-suffering to somebody who wants to learn, they're eager to learn, but they just haven't quite yet acquired the skill. And there are some people who have no patience for that. A lot of employers have no patience. They will just say, look, you're supposed to know it. You should already have 12 years experience before you show up to me and that's it. You're done. You're out of here. Instead of taking the time, being long-suffering and training them. Well, the same thing happens in Christendom. When somebody doesn't, they, they should be more mature by now. What, what is it that they're doing? How come they're not walking with the Lord like they should? What do you mean they're not coming to Bible study? What, what's the deal? How come they don't come on Sunday morning? You should be more mature. And we are not patient. Instead, the attitude should be as, well, we're blessed when they're here. We're blessed when they're participating. All we can do to encourage them to love and good deeds, that's great. But one of the fruits of the Spirit is being long-suffering or patiently enduring. Then there's kindness and goodness. These two are like twins. The kindness refers to moral excellence and character or demeanor, which means they, they don't have a filthy mouth running off. They don't tell the coarse jokes. Their attitude isn't soured, but they have moral excellence. A, a little more stoic, I guess, on the inside as far as their attitude is concerned. But they are gentle. And then there's this goodness, but the goodness, it, it deals with virtue and integrity and honesty and morality. Same thing with the kindness, but generosity is connected with this word. That you have all those attributes of kindness, but it goes a step further where you're being generous to those people who are around you. And then there's faithfulness. Now, in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6, I remembered this verse, and I wanted to look it up in several versions. And the Bible even, I think, declares that there's a little bit of frustration with finding somebody who is faithful. Now, being faithful means being fully persuaded, assured, devoted. Uh, fidelity is where we get this type of term. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6, now this is the King James. I have a couple of different versions here. This one says, Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find? It's a rhetorical question. The question is, you can't find somebody who is faithful. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 6, in another version says, Lots of people claim to be loyal and loving, but where on earth can you find them? And how about this one, New Century Version? Many people claim to be loyal, but it is hard to find a trustworthy person. I find that a little more so in this day and age of self-fulfillment, the focus on self, the declaration that we have rights and we're going to demand our rights instead of pointing to what our responsibilities are. And I think we're going to see it more and more that it's going to be more and more difficult to find somebody who is faithful and exhibits all of these other characteristics. 
Then there is gentleness. This is being mild and submissive of spirit towards God and men. You ever see uh, some of these motivational speakers? You go out and get them. I remember a television show from the 70s. It says, um, I got the goods. I got the books. They stand when, they, when I walk through the neighborhood. I'm making it. You know, it's like, well, it, how about if the Lord wills you make it? And we have a different attitude as believers. But this idea of gentleness is submissiveness of spirit towards God and men. We don't have to immediately want to teach and assert ourselves uh, towards others. We want to simply sit back and be patient. Then there is the self-control. This is the temperance, uh, being strong in a thing, masterful, self-restraint. All of these are characteristics of being indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And then it calls for us to examine, well, how many of these fruits do I possess? And if you gave a different fruit to each one of these, well, I have this loquat over here, and it's good, and again, the dragon fruit, and then the citrus. We should have a basket full of fruit if we're walking in the Spirit. Now, verse 24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Which means you, you've taken the flesh and you have crucified it. I gave that illustration where the cross is down there and you take your sinful nature and you take the, the spikes and you drive it into the hands and usually that sinful nature just looks back at you and says, when are you going to get me off of here? I, I, I want to come back to life. I want to rule in your life. And you're supposed to kind of be angry at it. You know, no, you're going to stay down. Remember I told you last week that the Apostle Paul, he buffeted his body to bring it into subjection. And it's difficult when we seek to crucify or mortify or kill the inward sinful desires, but it has to take place. And it takes place on the inside. That's where scripture says we're to take every thought captive. We're to hold it there and, and we are to crucify it if it's with a sinful nature or just destroy it or say, I won't think about such things. Remember Proverbs chapter, or excuse me, um, Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. Whatsoever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Why did he give that verse? Because our tendency is not to think about those things. He says, this is what you need to think about. The, when you look at something, you say, oh, how wonderful, how good. Or when you, now I like to people watch. You guys like to people watch? People going by and you just look at them and you go, <laughs> what, what is that? You know, and, and they're walking by. You can be at a park or someplace else. You're, you can say something in your mind like, well, that's unusual. I hope they get enjoyment out of that. You can think of something else to say. You know, there, there are some people out there that are just looking for trouble and it's very difficult to think good things or excellent things about some people like that. But that's what the Lord encourages us to do. And when we're doing that, you know, when we're leveling these criticisms at other people, why don't we look at ourselves and issue the, the criticism? Because I'm good. They stand when I walk through the neighborhood. I'm making it. I'm somebody. Don't you know that there was a preacher a long time ago that encouraged large crowds of youth to say, I'm somebody. And that's what he would have them repeat. Where if you're in Christ, we're nobody. And it's all about Jesus Christ himself. And that's the attitude we're supposed to develop. 
So we are reminded how Jesus went to the cross willingly when Paul uses the word crucify. We're to crucify the flesh. He gives that in verse 24. Matthew 16, verse 24, instructs us that we are supposed to take up our cross daily and follow him. Now, have you seen people do this literally? I, I just saw a little video of a guy. He was dressed like, quote, Jesus. And he had the long hair and he had the crown of thorns on and he had a white robe. I don't think Jesus looked anything like that, but he he was carrying a cross and he was going up an escalator with this cross inside of looked like a mall. Well, the cross was probably eight feet tall that he was carrying. And as he got to the top of the escalator, the cross pierced the ceiling as it just forced it right up in there and everybody around him is laughing what's going on and he's picking up his cross and he's carrying it and he's trying to demonstrate this is something literally that you do but he became a laughing stock out there looking like Jesus who couldn't carry his cross how it's stuck in the ceiling and he had to try to pull the thing out but it does remind us in scripture that we're supposed to carry our cross daily which means Take that cross and crucify the sinful nature on it. Now, it also reminds us that there is no other way to deal with the flesh. Remember when Jesus was in the garden and he said, If it is possible, Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. There was no other way to bring into being this salvation that we possess except for Jesus going to the cross. There's no other way to perfect the flesh. You have to crucify it. And remember, when I'm talking about the flesh, I'm talking about the sinful nature that is on the inside. We have to crucify that sinful nature. There is no other way. We want to find other ways. We want to find ways to feel good about ourselves. And as you get older, I think this is common with all people. There are so many sins that you can reflect back on. And when you reflect back on those sins and the enemy comes along and says, remember when you did this? And, and you go, stop it! You know, I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. Behold, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And you're supposed to use scripture against that type of attack. But if you start dwelling on those things, it's like, oh, I am so I am such a sinner. And, and you start getting down and the Lord says, take that, crucify it. Because that's where Satan uses the sinful nature and its remembrances or its memory and brings him up to accuse us. Just say, hey, I'm forgiven. I don't have to worry about that. And the past is the past and I can't change that. But God has given me a new life and I'm expecting to get a new body and there is going to be no more sinful nature. So as time goes by, the outward life will harmonize with the inward life, but it has to begin with the inward life. That is where the battle is won and lost. You know, we have the helmet of salvation, Ephesians chapter 6. You put on that helmet, which is the word of God, and it protects your mind, so to speak. It protects the brain. It protects the head where everything originates from. And that's what we're supposed to do. And unless you have the word of God, the helmet of salvation on, there's no way you're going to be winning this battle. So Paul offers some encouragement here. At the end of the chapter, he says, since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. In other words, since you have this new life, walk like you have the new life. And even in the pursuit of righteousness, we can become conceited in our own efforts and successes. You can look at 
yourself, I can look at myself, and we can say, well, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I got this discipleship thing down pretty well. What's wrong with you? Anyhow, how come uh, you can't get this right and shape up, would you? You know, this is part of being a witness for Christ. And, uh, or you could be envious of somebody else. You could say, I wish I was as spiritual as him, or I wish I was as spiritual as her. Look, just the paragon of virtue and, and the fruits of the Spirit. You could also fall into the envy. I want to assure you of one thing. No matter how virtuous or envious or wonderful you think somebody is, they aren't. And, and it's just them trying to work out their sanctification. Every single one of us is worthless in our flesh. But since we are saved, God says, you are the most valuable thing to me. And that's the great thing about the gospel. Without the gospel, the person is worthless. God cannot use them. But the person who has received Christ, God intends to use them and intends them to produce tremendous fruit. And that's where verse 26 comes in. It says, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And in the context, it's, I'm doing good. I'm okay. I'm following the Lord. And we're supposed to take heed lest we fall. And then provoking each other. Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to do? How come you're not living up to this idea of being a disciple of Jesus? Or I wish I was like them. I mean, which person would you point to and say, I wish I was like them? I would point to individuals and say, that's a great example. But I know the person who is giving that great example is fallen. And only Jesus is good. Only Jesus is righteous. So to apply all of this between last week and this week, we have learned that there is a battle between the fallen nature and the new nature, between the life that has not been redeemed and the life that has been redeemed and the struggle. It doesn't end when we ask Jesus to forgive us our sins. It really begins at that point because somebody who is a complete sinner does not have Christ, that that's the world that they live in. They give no second thoughts, usually, to doing something that they want to do, even though it is a sinful behavior. And it could be something just small. You know, even atheists can be moral people. But it could be just lying. Uh, it's a, I remember uh, members of my family when I was growing up, it's a little white lie. What on earth is a white lie? As opposed, well, what's a black lie? And, and what's a yellow lie? And what's a red lie? And all, what's a green lie? I, I have no idea. But as a small child, you're just going, okay, white lies are good. That's what I was thinking when I'd hear, we can use white lies for our benefit. And no, that's not how it works. So it can be something like that. But those of us, you know, who have submitted ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we do not have this fearful expectation of judgment which lies ahead because of these sins. This is where we can rest. We can have that peace that I was talking about on the inside. You, you simply go, well, Lord, you know that I'm a blow-it. You can say the same thing. You, you can say, yeah, Lord, we know we're blow-its, but it is so great that we're your blow-its and you're going to transform us into that creature that you want us to be and so that's the encouragement here we just need to avoid the pitfalls making sure we feed the spirit and make sure we crucify the flesh my prayer for you is that you are able to do so successfully now we won't be a hundred percent successful 
But we just move forward day by day, seeking to be pleasing to Christ. And as we know his word, we will become more effective in his kingdom, be able to use our gifts more efficiently and more effectively, and others will be blessed around us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and the advice he has given us here about the fallen nature, the sins of the flesh, as well as life in the spirit, the love, joy, peace, and patience. May we exhibit those in abundance. May we be like the good fruit of the field that brings nourishment and health, not only to ourselves, but to those around us. And Father, with your help, we'll trust in you to bring this to fruition. In Jesus' name, and the church said, please stand.